Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word to Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, welcome back um, to the pod. We are going to be getting into the book of Judges and a little bit of the book of Ruth today. It's a short book. But um, as we have foreshadowed in previous episodes, this is not a happy or bright time at all in Israel's history. We've been pretty optimistic coming out of Joshua. Things seem to go pretty well, about as well as they've gone up to this point under the rule of Joshua. But once he dies at the beginning of the book of Judges, it is going to start a downward spiral. And by the end of this book, you might not want to keep reading. Like it's, it is some of the most dark and hard to read yeah. sections of scripture. One of the last verses of the book of Joshua was, Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. You know, they, they served Yahweh, they honored their fearless leader, Joshua. It's kind of a, a cool generation. And that's how the book of Joshua ends. Now let me read the very last verse of the book of Judges, if I can spoil it for us. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. And that summarizes the book of Judges. Uh, hence, the title of the episode today is The Downward Spiral of Your Own Way. When you live for yourself and you're making decisions solely on you as number one, that road leads to somewhere. And the book of Judges shows us what the end of that path looks like. That's exactly right. So in Joshua, they came into the land and God gave them the land, but they had to do work. They had to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And what was the rule? It's kind of like one rule, right? Yeah. Finish the job. Yeah. Like drive them completely out. Don't leave them around because their bad influence, their idolatry in particular is going to lead you astray. Mm -hmm. God knows the power of influence. And that's one reason why he said you've got to completely wipe them out. And they fail to do that. And that's given to us in the introduction of the book of Judges. There's actually even like a list at the end of chapter 1 of all the different tribes. Uh, For instance, in Judges 1, verse 27, it says, Manasseh, one of the tribes, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblaim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out Mm -hmm. completely. And so we won't read all of the the names and places, but it details um, the failure to completely finish the job that God had given that generation to do. And it may not have seemed like a big problem at first. It's like, oh, well, like they're just doing forced labor. It's not a big deal. But when you leave a little bit of sin in your life... Mm -hmm its influence will just spread. Yes, I want to specifically point out Judges 2, um, verse 3. This is God talking to them, or the angel of the Lord, rather. Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. And that is a phrase that we've seen a few different times throughout the narrative of the Bible at this point, that God is saying, if you cannot figure out how to get these people completely out of your life, They will be as a thorn in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. Guess what? Thorns in your side and snares that are in the way, those things aren't good for you. Those things are going to trip you up later, and it's going to be your downfall. And so they're 
command was to completely drive these people out. And as Stephen said, it, it is so symbolic of sin in our life. We can't just leave a little bit in. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, That's the New Testament picture of the same principle. Yeah, exactly. And so um, this this book is just stands so so different than the book of Joshua did, where the parents took a stand. It, it almost looks like that these people themselves have to learn from their own mistakes, and sadly they never do. They, they don't look to the example of their parents, yet they fall into the same mistake that their grandparents did whenever they were in the wilderness and didn't put trust in God. That's right. So just being in the land doesn't make them magically more holy. They still have to fight generation by generation to be true to the Lord. So there's kind of interesting in chapter two, it gives us kind of a summary preview of the cycle because there's going to be some lot, there's going to be a lot of repeated words and phrases in the book of Joshua or book of Judges, excuse me, that give us kind of the downward, we call it a spiral because you keep coming around to the same things, but it just gets worse with each episode. Um, In chapter two, starting in verse 11, uh, we see the beginning of this, the people of Israel, uh, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So the Baals are these idols of the Canaanites. Uh, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, then bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then verse 16, Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So what we're going to see in the first parts of this are Israel rebels against God. They do what's right in their own eyes and think, we don't need God's ways. We don't need his laws. We know how to do this better than God. So they do evil. And so the Lord, to try to get them to turn around, lets them suffer, lets them fall into the hand of their enemies. And this happens over and over again. And this is exactly what God said was going to happen. Through Moses and through Joshua, both of them said, if you will not serve God while you're in the land, God will let others come in and, and punish you for it. Right. And so this was not like, anything they should have been caught off guard about. This was something God was upfront about when he was holding up his end of the covenant relationship that they had made with him. Mm-hmm. So they sin, and then the Lord allows them to fall into the hand of their enemies, and they're oppressed for a time, sometimes for years, mm-hmm. by these enemies yeah, yeah. who come against them. Yeah. And at some point in there, they do cry out to the Lord, yeah. and they say, Lord, we need your help. Uh, we're in terrible distress here. Please help us. And so the Lord raises up a judge. Mm-hmm. And the word, we use the word judge, that is the Bible word here, but it's not so much the idea of someone with a gavel and yeah. like in a courtroom. And, and a saying, white wig. Like, right, right. you got to have the white wig. Um, it's more the idea of a military commander. I or, heard you say the word warlord. Warlord, yeah, there yeah, you go. Yeah, so, and I think that is the idea. Is It was somebody that was going to come in, that was God appointed and kind of lead the military direction to drive out the people that have come in to oppress them. And so in a way they are judging the foreign nations for what they've done to come in and hurt them. And so that's why judges is kind of a synonym for that idea. That's right. So when you think of the book of Judges, think of a dude with a sword (laughs) more than a dude with like a gavel. Right. Um, That's really more the idea. And so they deliver the people and save them from the hand of those who plundered them. But look at verse 17. 
Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not stop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so this just sets up the cycle of the judges. Even after they cry out to God and God delivers them, once the consequences are gone, they don't actually continue in their repentance. They're like, oh, the consequences are gone. So we're going to keep on doing our stubborn ways. And they actually get worse than their fathers. Each progressive generation is worse. And again, it's this downward spiral of debauchery and just total rejection of God. And one of the scariest things that we see God allows to happen is if we reject him, he will let us walk into further and further destruction as we walk in what is right in our own eyes. It's really sobering to see what God will allow to happen in giving us free will. Yeah. And I mean, God also is a part of their punishment. It says in verse 20, um, because this nation has transgressed against my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and have not listened to my voice. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. And so appears to me part of the punishment is god decides you know what i won't drive the rest of these out if if they so badly want to be like these foreign nations we'll leave them in and it'll serve as a test to them Mm -hmm. to see if they will actually put their trust in me or not and so uh i just think that's an interesting thing to point out there and that goes really into chapter three as well it says in chapter three and verse four um oh sorry chapter three verse one now these are the nations which the lord left to test israel by them Verse 4, they, uh, they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. Mm-hmm. And so these four nations would serve as a test um, of their faithfulness to God. Which, I mean, that just really teaches us something important about God, is that God can even use evil things for his own purposes. Mm-hmm. He allows evil influences to remain in the world to see if we will love him or not. I mean, this actually goes back to the Garden of Eden and like him allowing the serpent in there um, to see if Adam and Eve would follow the one rule that they had to not eat from the one tree. Exactly. Um, God allows us to be tested. And now God is not the author of evil, but he allows it in the world in large part to see if we love him and to see if we're going to be true to his ways. There's no love if there's no choice. And so he allows evil... And he does have limits on it. Uh, We read about that in the book of Job and other places. But we just learn about how God works sometimes in this book. Mm -hmm. And that he's not going to force us against our will. And that's a sobering thing. Um, It's a beautiful thing that God keeps rescuing them and having pity on them. We see a lot of patience. The Lord could have at any point just said, you know what? Too bad. You know, like, you, I'm just going to let them totally wipe you out um, because of what you did. But God keeps delivering them, keeps helping them when they cry out to him even though it just keeps getting worse and worse in this book. So in chapter 3, one of the things that happens is they are surrounded by all of these foreign nations that are in their land, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. 
And specifically it points out to us in 3.6 that they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. You have to understand that the, the problem with having these foreign nations in isn't just the, the, the problem of the everyday dealings and the influence that comes with interacting with them. The bigger problem is when they begin to intermarry with the foreign nations. Can mm-hmm. you see where that would create the bigger problem? Now you're raising children with somebody who serves Baal or Ashtaroth. It's going to be easier for you to compromise on your values for the sake of your spouse. And that is where you start to see an even further downward spiral is not only when the nations are in among the Israelites, but when they start to intermarry with the foreign nations, right. that's when it becomes an even bigger problem. That's right. And the problem with the intermarriage is not a race thing. It is a spiritual thing. Correct. That they're marrying people who do not serve We're, Yahweh or love him. And we also see later that there are foreigners who do marry in. Yes. Um, actually, the book of Ruth, which is going to be attached yes. to the book of Judges, um, is about a really faithful foreign Moabite woman. And that is the key. She's a faithful, loyal servant of Yahweh. That is the difference. And look, the New Testament talks a lot about this as well. It'll talk about the foolishness of, of being with or being married to someone that's not a Christian and just the difficulty that comes with that. And we understand that, that that makes sense. If we're bound to somebody who has different opinions about the Lord and religion than us, then it creates friction and it can be hard to want to stay faithful to the Lord. So the New Testament has a lot of advice and encouragement about those situations. That's right. Um, so like Stephen said, it's not a race thing, but it is a dedication to the Lord type of thing. And yes. so it's important for us to consider that with a prospective uh, spouse or, or something like that. Amen. So Judges 1 and 2, little bit of first part of 3, gives us the introduction. Okay, here's the template for what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. It kind of sets us up. And then in chapters 3 through 16, we get into the actual stories of the judges. And again, the kind of the, the warlords here, uh, the deliverers um, from the foreign nations. Um, there is a wide variety of detail that we get as we go through. You're going to notice really quick that like not every judge, you don't know a lot about some of the judges. You know almost nothing about some of the judges. And other judges get multiple chapters of detail to their story. But one of the things that you're also going to notice as you walk through these stories is that the judges start out pretty good. And they progressively, the judges themselves get worse and worse until you get to Samson. Samson's actually going to make the worst of the judges. A lot of times you hold up Samson and it's like, yeah, Samson. But like... He's like the go read Samson's story. He's the story. climax, <laughs> the anticlimax. Oh, sorry, like, it is. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. just a downward spiral in this book. And so in chapter three, um, you have the story of Othniel, um, and uh, he's related to Caleb, who is a really powerful oh, leader. We noted him in the yeah, book of Joshua. And uh, you have Ehud, really kind of a cool story about uh, Ehud and the the ambush he has against Eglon, which is like one of the. You get why some of these stories are famous for kids. You like Eglon, the fat king. Yeah, like perfect. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah but and it, we noted this earlier. When Israel is punished, it's not like it's like a slap on the wrist for six months. Like at the end of Ehud's run, um, it says that, or excuse me, Othniel's run, it says that they had served Eglon for eighteen years. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. I mean, that, that's how long it takes to become an adult. You know, like that's you have you could have a child born at the beginning of that. That's an adult by the time they come out of it. And so these are not just short periods of of oppression, but long years that sometimes go along with it. Yeah, I also make a point that a lot of the judges were local. Um, again, Israel is kind of a loose connection of twelve tribes at this point, 
but they don't have a centralized government other than like their religion. They don't have a king. And so these local judges are often, the, the, the enemies are often local and the judges are often local. So when we read through these stories, it's not just like one continuous, like all 12 tribes were oppressed at the same time and one judge saved all 12 tribes. Often it's like, smaller chunks than that as you read through we're getting pictures of a time period that that really paint a broader picture for what was happening in the other places as Mm -hmm. well that's right um and so uh but i also like to note as well that i mean at the end of um ehud here in in verse 29 it says uh, they struck down at that time about ten thousand moabites all robust and valiant men and no one escaped so moab was subdued that day under the hand of israel and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Mm-hmm. And so there is sometimes a longer period of rest that the Israelites are able to have. Yeah. And, I mean, the period of the judges is going to take us several hundred years to get through all of this. Again, we read through it very quickly, and sometimes decades are passing in just a, a half a verse, like you just read. And so, again, this is not a chronological completely thing, but thematically we see it progressing and getting worse and worse and worse. So Othniel, Ehud, uh, Shamgar, is, we've got one verse on Shamgar, killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And then uh, you do have a little more detail with Deborah and Barak, which what's interesting about this story is Barak should have been the judge, yeah. but like he doesn't usually even get like included in the kids' songs yeah. or whatever, which is ironic because Barak's a coward. Yeah. Uh, and he won't go without Deborah. And so Deborah kind of gets the spotlight mm-hmm. uh, because Deborah had to step up because Barak wouldn't do his job. Barak said, I won't go unless you go with me. And it's also interesting in Hebrews 11, uh, as it recalls men of faith, Barak is mentioned in that story. Mm-hmm. Just to, goes to show, though, that the Lord is the one that wins the battles. He, he is the one that our strength comes from. And in Barak's story, it's all the more true mm-hmm. as he is a coward. Um, and he goes and he relies on Deborah, who um, is able to, to rally the people together so that they can yet again turn back to the Lord like they want to do. That's right. And so uh, really two famous female figures in chapter four. You've got Deborah. Um, you also got Jael. Uh, who ends up being one of the heroines of the story because she, she's the one who drives the tent peg uh, mm-hmm. through Sisera's temple. Really cool story. We're not going to read all the stories, obviously, on the podcast today, but um, encourage you to go and do that um, when you have the opportunity. And then chapter 5 is a poetic retelling of the story, which I think is really cool. It gives us some insight to like the Psalms and how they work. You have like the historical account in chapter 4, the poetic account in chapter 5. Um, and that gives us a, a helpful way of kind of reading some of the other poetic texts to see, like, oh, here's what literally happened, and then, like, here's a poetic description of it. Same thing with Exodus. Like, there was a little exodus, literal exodus in Exodus 14. Then the Song of Moses in Exodus 15 is a poetic retelling. Similar thing here in these chapters. But the first few judges um, are mostly good. Um, they're, they're, they're listening to the Lord. Uh, they're, they're doing what's right, and they're delivering the children of Israel in the way that they were supposed to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so this gets us into chapter 6, where they are then oppressed by the Midianites for seven years. Guess why? Because they were unfaithful to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And we're introduced to the next king, or I see king. Bo, Not but, king. No, sorry. <laughs> into the next judge, whose name is Gideon. And um, he has a kind of an interesting story. He gets several chapters, more airtime than some of the other judges get throughout the book. Yeah. And it's because he really, I think, had the best intentions. Uh, I think he started off with um, a lot of 
lack of faith, not understanding um, what God was calling him to do. And God meets him with ways to build his faith. There's the classic stories, if you've heard them, about like this fleece blanket and like, you know, set it out in the morning and it'll be dry uh, where everything else has dew on it. And then the next morning it's the opposite. Um, and so God kind of goes along with Gideon to help establish some faith in him. And then it's from there that Gideon goes out and he takes down an altar of Baal and um, he goes on this military conquest um, to save Israel. But this is also in chapter 7. This might be a story you're familiar with. This is where they start off with 22,000 people to go up against the Midianites. And eventually that number that number whittles down to 10,000 uh, because Gideon basically asked, who doesn't actually want to be here? Scared? Go home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it gets whittled down to 10,000. And uh, we'll take some time to, to read this part. This is in Judges 7 and verse 4. This is after the army has been whittled down to, uh, to 10,000. The Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be he of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands, so let all the other people go, each man to his house. Mm-hmm. So God whittles this number down from 22,000 to 10,000 to 300 men. Mm-hmm. Because what does God know about this generation? Well, in verse 2... He said, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. God knows that these people will take the credit for being successful in delivering themselves from the Midianites. And so he whittles it down to where it would be impossible for them to say that. Um, And that just goes to show really how far gone, even when they're trying to be penitent, um, they are um, just... um, putting their trust in themselves and not putting their trust in God. Yes. And I mean, we learned some important lessons about the Lord and about how he delivers is that it's not because any of these judges were so good. It's not because any of them are such brilliant military strategists and like, okay, guys, I got this plan. I got 300 guys. We're going to no, like God whittles it down to be like the, you're going to look back on this. And the only thing you're going to be able to conclude is God was with us. That's the only reason that any good came out of this situation is God delivered us and took care of us. And so God is teaching his people in each of these episodes, you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me. And that would help them, hopefully, to follow God's laws and say, even though the nations around us aren't doing this, we've got to trust God and keep his ways. Otherwise, we keep getting oppressed by these nations and keep becoming more like the nations. So God's giving them every opportunity to learn the lessons they're supposed to learn. But we just see that it doesn't doesn't stick with them. It doesn't sink in. So in chapter 7, God uses these 300 men to deliver Israel from Midian, which the Midianites do most of the work. They're confused. There's a thing with the torches and the Mm -hmm. pots on top, and so there's suddenly light and sound, and they shout out, sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and the Midianites get confused and mostly kill each other, and the the 300 just kind of do a cleanup job at the end of that. But unfortunately, that's not the end of Gideon's story. That's the part we always tell the kids, and uh, we, we kind of leave out. Uh, 
a lot of what happens later. Um, but Gideon seems to kind of go downhill at the end of his life, and he ends up naming his son Abimelech, um, which is interesting because near the end of Gideon's life, they offer to make Gideon king. Yes. And he says in chapter 8, verse 23, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He, ha- he says the right things with his mouth. But I think in his heart, when he named his kid Abimelech, that, na- that word means my father is king. And Abimelech does not go on to do what Gideon said. But if you go and read chapter 9, Abimelech leads a conspiracy to become king. So he's kind of a self-appointed ruler, self-appointed judge. He gets included in the list sometimes, but he's not really a judge that the Lord approved of. But he rises up and ends up getting killed. Yeah, and I'll also just mention Gideon's story ends after he denies the kingship. He gets a spoil of gold from the people and turns it into an ephod, places it in his city, um, Orphrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Even Gideon's story, as encouraging as it is, it ends with him in idolatry mm-hmm. and his household. And so even in the one of the brightest spots of Judges, it ends on a sad note to just show how far this generation really has gone from the Lord. That's right. Gideon's story begins a downward slope uh, into the corruption, not just of the people over and over again, but the corruption of the judges themselves as well. Um, And so, again, Gideon's story is a powerful reminder of don't just start strong, finish strong, continue to trust the Lord. Um, And, of course, Abimelech's story is recorded in chapter 9, and it's just sad uh, to see the the violence and bloodshed that happens with him um, and his willingness to do whatever he can to grab power. This sounds more and more like the Canaanites. That's the pattern we're going to see in Judges is... Uh, they look more and more like the nations around them. They're supposed to be holy. They're supposed to be distinct and separate uh, from the nations, but they look more and more like the nations. Uh, Abimelech ends up being killed by a woman who drops a stone out of a tower that he was coming to attack and crushes his head. Um, and uh, he actually has a his young man say, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. <laughs> Unfortunately for him, the story is recorded forever, so <laughs> everybody knows that a woman really did the, did the, did the job. Um, but it's just, uh, it's just sad to see Gideon's own son um, being a source of so much trouble in Israel as you become to the end of chapter 9. Yeah, so that brings us into the story of Jephthah in chapter 11. And um, he is a son of a prostitute, chapter 11, verse 1 tells us. And uh, because of that, his brothers end up saying to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And then uh, it's at this time that the Ammonites come up to fight against Israel, and Jephthah is called on to be the chief so that they can fight up against or fight and have war with these men from Ammon. Yeah, so um, we skipped over Tola and Jair in chapter 10. Again, a couple of judges we just don't know a whole lot about. Um, do not get much airtime in the, the book of Judges. But Jephthah, uh, we're going to go from Gideon was disappointing. Uh, Jephthah 
is really not a good guy. No. Um, there's, there's friction with his own people at the beginning of the chapter. He does deliver Israel. He steps up. But the big thing that we remember about Jephthah is his really foolish vow in the middle of this. Um, in uh, verse 30 of chapter 11, it says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Um, just stupid. Unnecessary. Do not have to make a vow like that. Again, it sounds noble. Like, oh, I'm going to give this thing to the Lord. And I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know what he was expecting. But of course... You keep reading, and the the thing that, that comes out of his door is daughter. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of debate over what exactly happens at the end of this his, chapter. His reaction, we'll read that, and you can be the judge of it. When he sees that it's his daughter, he says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So, I mean, take what you want from that, but it, it looks like he's ready to go through with it. Um, and to me, this is just a, a complete misunderstanding of the character of God at this point. Th- this entire nation, even in the midst of success, uh, that the Lord gives victory, they still don't know who God is. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't understand his character. They don't understand his nature. And more importantly, they don't understand what he wants. That's right. And so Jephthah is just a, a tragic example of someone who is paying lip service to the Lord and kind of haphazardly trying to do things that seem right but not really serving God in the way that he wants to be served. Um, and so, tragic story mm-hmm. uh, with, with Jephthah. Uh, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon are thrown in at the cha- end of chapter 12. Yeah. Uh, again, we know very little about each of those. Um, but then we have the judge that we know the most about, probably easily the most famous of the judges, and that is Samson. And his story spans four whole chapters. So chapters 13 through 16 uh, of Judges are devoted to Samson. And what a rotten guy. <laughs> like, again, we look at Samson. And the thing we remember, right, is like, oh, he was so strong. Um, and that did come from the Lord. He has a Nazarite vow, uh, which you can read about back in the book of Numbers. But, man, uh, he's a womanizer. He is selfish. He's foolish. He's angry. Uh, he's like everything you don't want out of a judge. And his story goes from bad to worse as you continue to read it. He's with these different foreign women uh, who lead him astray. And of course, the most famous of those is Delilah. And she's bad news from beginning to end. Um, There's just all sorts of of stories in here uh, of Samson being led astray by women. And I think we've made this note in a couple other um, podcasts, but we learn about the danger of sexual immorality and of foolish decisions based on um, attraction in these stories and uh sometimes i've heard it said this way what do samson david and solomon all have in common Mm -hmm. their biggest weakness is women that's right and with those three just so different characters i mean david a man after god's own heart solomon the wisest man that ever lived and then solomon or excuse me um samson the strongest man that well that's recorded here all of them have the same downfall and that is women Mm -hmm. and unless you think you're stronger than samson you know, more godly than David and wiser than Solomon, you better watch out too. Mm-hmm. So sobering reminders in these chapters. But of course, most famously, uh, Delilah betrays Samson um, into the hands of the Philistines. Um, and uh, he, she gives away the secret of the final 
breaking of his Nazarite vow. It was his hair. And um, again, it wasn't his hair that gave him power. Yeah. It was the fact that he was holding on to at least the, the, the remnants of his vow to the Lord. Yes. Um, and when the Lord leaves him, he's just like any other man. Yes. It was the Spirit of God that made him strong. But I want to note here as we go through this that even if someone has some powers by the Spirit, it doesn't make them godly and moral. <laughs> um, Samson is acting uh, with power from the Lord here, but he's not always using it in a godly way. Um, now, I do think the Lord uses Samson to accomplish his purposes, but God can use a lot of things to accomplish his purposes, even if they're not acting the way he wants them to. We've seen that already in the book of Judges. But famously, yeah. at the end of the book... Yeah, go ahead. Well, they start with they gouge his eyes out. I like to point that out mm-hmm. in chapter 16, verse 21, that he has his eyes gouged out, so he's first blinded by these people, and they're really just using him to, to laugh at. They're, mm-hmm. they're, he's kind of like just a a court jester to them at that point and they're just laughing at him and so he's called on to go perform for them or so that they can laugh at him and then this is what happens yep so he's in the the house of the philistines in the house of their god um and there's you know at least three thousand men and women there and he prays to the lord and says in verse uh, this is sixteen twenty eight. samson called on the lord and said oh lord god Please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines from my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Um... And that's the end of the story of Samson. A uh, tragic story in a lot of ways, but again, the Lord does bring deliverance uh, through the hand of even a, an ungodly man, yeah. uh, largely like Samson. Tells us that he judged Israel for 20 years. Um, so that gets us into chapter 17. And we'll say it again, it's a downward spiral. That, yeah. that, that is what's happening here. Um, in this, chapter 17, we're introduced to a guy named Micah, who's from the hill country of Ephraim. And he ends up making a household idol. A uh, priest kind of comes into the area. And then he, like, hires the priest to, like, be a priest of the idol that he made. Is that the idea, That's Stephen? the idea. And so, I mean, these last this last section of the book of Judges, so chapter 17 through 21, are two final stories that are the bottom of the downward spiral. I mean, it doesn't get worse than this. Yes. In 17 and 18, you just see the religious corruption of Micah, first of all, making idols. God said, don't do that. Um, and then you see this Levite who's supposed to be serving the Lord, but he lets himself out for hire. He takes money from this guy. He's like, oh yeah, I'll serve your idol. Cool. Um, that's great. But that you see that even the name of the Lord coming up in these chapters as if they're serving him. And then the tribe of Dan hasn't done what they're supposed to do in conquering the land. They don't have a space to go. And so they come through town pillaging and they're like, hey, we could use this idol and this Levite to make us feel better religiously. So, like, let's let's take them and do this thing. Yeah. And so it just is like nobody is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Everyone's making this up as they go along. And it's just anarchy. Every man does what's right in his own eyes. Almost every single chapter in this final sequence um, has the, the refrain. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
and then it, 17 and 18 go together. And then in chapter 19, it starts with, in those days when there was no king in Israel. <laughs> um, and then, of course, the book will end at the end of chapter 21 with that final refrain. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it's just this drumbeat of like, don't you see what happens when you stop the objective, following the objective standard of God's laws and God's rules? People want to lash out against that. Let's cast off these rules. We don't want God's restrictive ways. But when you throw away God's good laws, this is what you're left with. Total religious confusion. People are pillaging, plundering. Mike makes right is kind of the, the situation you end up with. Whoever's the strongest gets to do whatever they want to do. And that's not a world really that anyone wants to live in. Um, with just the rule of of the of the power of man. The other thing that keeps getting echoed through these chapters um, in chapter eighteen, verse one, in there in those days there was no king of Israel. There, you know there was no one central government like we've pointed out. Ch- same thing in chapter nineteen, verse one. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah, and that kind of gets us into what I think is the most wicked story we see in Judges. Despite all the other wickedness, it is hard to read these chapters. This is a hard one. Um, We won't get into all the ins and outs of it, but the the flyover of this is this man ends up marrying this woman. She ends up cheating on him and plays a, a harlot or a prostitute on him. He goes to get her back while she's staying in her father's house. He finally convinces her to come with them, and um, they go on their way, find themselves in the city of Gibeah. Mm-hmm. It's and, a city in the tribe of Benjamin. And as they get there, uh, they're in the open square of the city. They can't find anywhere to stay. This is already reminding us of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when those angels come into Sodom and Gomorrah and don't have a place to stay. And an old man comes and tells him to come into his house. So this couple, they go into his house, and the men of the city are worthless men. They come beating on the door, demanding that this older man who took in this couple send out the man so that they may have their way with him and the old man says no he's not going to do that and instead uh, they end up offering up both um, the old man's virgin daughter and the concubine the wife of this man who had cheated on him and so the wife gets sent out or the concubine gets sent out and the men rape her um, and they just do unspeakable things to her and leave her for dead um, but she ends up living through it and after he gets her back the husband gets his wife that's been raped back well she she does die at the, at the oh sorry at the end yeah, I'm the so night. sorry I yeah. thought okay yeah I misunderstood that yeah. um, what ends up happening is he cuts her body up into 12 pieces and sends them each to a different tribe yeah and it's just telling Israel how bad things have gotten you remember um Back in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, like the Lord said, like the outcry from that city has come up to me. I can't, I can't tolerate this anymore. And that's why He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But He rescued the righteous people in those cities, Lot. Um, and here, Israel. This is an Israelite city, and it has become just as bad as the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were infamous for their evil and all the perversion that was going on in those cities. And so. It's bad enough what happens there, but then once the other tribes see what happened in Gibeah of Benjamin, it starts a civil war. Mm-hmm. They come against Benjamin and are like, you can't live like this. You can't be like this. Benjamin resists, so they get into a battle, 
And it's just a bloodbath. Mm. There are thousands of people dying. There's just judgment coming on all sides here. Uh, the people fighting against Benjamin are dying. The Benjamites are dying. And what ends up happening is in the waves of civil war that happen in chapter 20, it decimates Benjamin down to just like 600 men. Um, this tribe is almost completely wiped out. Israel almost became 11 tribes because of the civil war. And so they're left with this problem. How are we going to continue to have a tribe of Benjamin? And of course, they do this in a terrible way. In chapter 21, there's this crazy story about how they're going to capture unsuspecting women who are going up to worship to be wives for these 600 remaining Benjamites. I mean, it's like the problem's bad. The solution's even worse. And so... This is the last story in the book of Judges. It just becomes, goes from bad to worse to terrible. And the, the Benjamin survives. And can, like, there continues to be a tribe of Benjamin, but at the cost of all morality in Israel. Yeah, and it's like they're all trying to fix their own problems. Like they get into a problem, and then they're like, "Okay, all right, uh, let's try to fix." Well, we'll snatch women and make them marry. You know, it's just like it's just it just goes to show what happens when society ignores God altogether and only puts trust in themselves. And that is why, as we noted at the beginning of the podcast, that it ends with, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And, man, true words have never been written about a generation. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible story of people who just ignore the Lord altogether. But there is glimmers of light throughout these stories. And that is why the book of Ruth was written, I believe, to show us, A, um, the the hope that Israel had despite all these bad things that happened. And B, we also see a trace of the Messiah, even in the days of the judges as well. And so the book of Ruth is recorded for us. That's right. The book of Ruth opens with, in the days when the judges ruled. And you stop right there and you're like, I don't want any more of this. Like, I just finished Judges. I don't want another Judges story. But thankfully, this is not just another Judges story. Uh, Ruth is a short book. We don't have time to read it on the podcast today, but it is a breath of fresh air in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And it just is a helpful reminder to us that even when the world seems like everyone's gone crazy and there's nobody doing good anymore, there are still good people out there who love the Lord and are going to do what's right, even if no one else around them is doing it. And we see this example of Ruth. So she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. And her story is a tragic one. Mm -hmm. All the men in the family yep. die, and there's no one to provide for them. And when Naomi's Israelite mother-in-law is going back home to Bethlehem, she clings to her and is like, I'm going to stay with you no matter what. And I'm going to serve your God. I'm going to, I'm going to become an Israelite, basically. Now, she was not ethnically an Israelite, but she serves the God of Israel. And when she goes back, she ends up meeting a man of kindness and integrity named Boaz. And it's a beautiful story of how uh, Boaz takes care of this foreigner when it was very dangerous for her to be out doing what she was doing, trying to glean the edges of the fields to provide for her mother-in-law. And he protects her. He helps her. He blesses her mm -hmm. and ends up marrying her. Now, there's some back and forth that's a little bit confusing for us culturally at the end of this book as far as like how that happened. The Lord had set up there to be a redeemer system in Israel. And that there was a protocol for that. But Boaz is a man of the law. He's going to serve the Lord um, even at times to his own uh, potential disadvantage. 
Um, he is a man of integrity over and over in this book. And like Chase mentioned, the book ends with Ruth having a child, continuing the name uh, of her father's house, or of uh, the Redeemer, and she ends up being in the family of David, mm-hmm. and therefore in the family of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so, so many powerful reminders. I'm so glad we have Ruth that follows the book of Judges. Yes. So Ruth ends up having a son named Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. And so that's a pretty close line. I, I wonder if David would have actually been able to have met Ruth. That's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, but David, um, as we know, will be the the father, great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus Christ. And so I think that's the reason this is recorded for us, A, so we can see where the Messianic line had continued, but also to see that despite all the evil things that were going on in those days, guess what God was preserving? The line through the tribe of Judah from which the Messiah would come. Mm -hmm. Despite all that wickedness, God still had a plan to send his son so that all of that would be fixed and so that there would be hope in him. And so we need to look for those moments as we're reading some of these dark chapters because often if we, if we will look closely enough, we will find those moments of the Messiah or God um, delivering his people and, and showing that they have a reason to trust him. And so always look for those moments as we read through some of the darker parts of Scripture. Yeah, that's right. This is a, a, such an interesting section of Scripture because even in the midst of, of an insanely dark, like hard-to-read stories, um, we see that the Lord is still at work, and, and that reminds us so much of God's ability to work even now, mm-hmm. um, and that even when it seems like the world has just totally rejected God, it's totally falling apart, don't lose trust in God and in His ways. It, it is worth it to serve God even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and as things get worse and worse, that doesn't surprise us. It saddens us, but it makes us realize, okay, like this has happened before. And God will take care of his people. We can trust God, and he's the one who's brought Jesus to continue to help be a light in the midst of the darkness. And we can shine as lights if we'll be like Boaz, be like Ruth, and uh, walk different from the culture. Ruth is also a little bit of a down payment um, of what we're going to see come in the New Testament when the Gentiles are opened uh, to come Mm -hmm. to the Lord. Um, As Ruth herself was a Gentile person, a Moabitess, she is able to walk right into being a Jew because she follows Yahweh. She um, she follows him. And so that will be true in the New Testament as well as Jesus comes to die not only for the Jews but for the Gentiles, which means all people um, have the ability to be saved through Jesus Christ. And so that's a beautiful thing to see as early as in the book of Ruth. Yeah, amen. And she makes another genealogy of, of Jesus in yes. Matthew chapter 1. One of five women there. Yeah. So we're putting together the story of the Bible And even in these dark chapters, you can see God working. You can see the examples for us. And all of this is leading to Jesus. Um, God is so patient with us. I mean, how many times, if you were God in this book, would you just said, okay, that's it. (laughs) Like, we're starting over. Mm -hmm. We're, We're hitting the reset button. But God does not do that. He does allow them to be punished for their sins. They suffer, especially when they're just given up to their own ways. We're often our own worst enemy. But God's faithfulness is just one of the greatest themes that we're seeing as we're walking through these Old Testament books. Yep. Amen. Lord willing, we're going to get into the next section of God's people, um, which is 
starts with a young man named Samuel, who is really kind of the last of the judges of Israel. And so his story picks up in the book of 1 Samuel. I'm not really sure how far we'll go, but uh, we're, that is, Lord willing, where we're going to begin next time. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review that will help us reach more people. If you're interested in online or in-person Bible studies with us, reach out 717-585-0949. You can text us or call us or drop us an email at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information on those studies or group studies, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.